It's now my absolute pleasure and privilege to introduce this evening's speaker, Professor Emma Cave. Emma Cave is a professor of law, healthcare law, at Durham Law School in England, where she writes principally on matters relating to informed consent, capacity and the treatment of children. Her 2004 monograph, The Mother of All Crimes, was reissued in 2018, and the seventh edition of her co-author book with Professor Margaret Brazier and Professor Rob Haywood, Medicine, Patients and the Law, will be published in 2023. In addition to her academic work, Emma has undertaken several public service roles. She was recently appointed as a core member of the expert panel to the Health and Social Care Committee, a House of Commons Select Committee, that scrutinises work by the Department of Health and Social Care and holds the government to account on commitments made. She chairs a General Medical Council Advisory Forum on the revision of their core guidance, Good Medical Practice. She's a member of the Assurance Group to the CAS Review, an independent review of gender identity to identify services for children and young people. She previously served as a member of the Assisted Reproduction Regulator, the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Authority, 2008 to 2021, when she was Deputy Chair of the Statutory Approvals Committee and co-convened the Medical Ethics Expert Group of the Infected Blood Inquiry Forum from 2019 to 2022. Emma, of course, is eminently qualified to speak on the topic evening, which relates to medical decision uh, making by, adult, uh, by young adults. Thank you very much, Emma. Okay, so thank you so much, Tina. Um, I want to start though with an apology. I seem to have brought the English weather with me. <laughs> It's a huge honour um, for me to be asked to give the 10th annual oration. I'm a great admirer of the Australian Centre for Health Law Research, uh, the seriously impactful research that we've just heard about, the rigorous research, and the fantastic community uh, that it fosters. And I've been lucky enough to sample your kindness and generosity today and look forward to building on what we've begun in the future. So this is a joint research paper with my daughter, which is a first to me, a really lovely thing for me to be able to do. Hannah, so she's in her third year studying psychology at Newcastle University in the northeast of England. And Hannah has contributed some important insights from psychology, which I'll come to later in the paper. And the paper upon which this talk is based was accepted by the Modern Law Review just a few hours before I set up uh, for Brisbane on Monday. So um, I'm, I'm really pleased this will be coming out there. I'm going to look at the law's response to refusals of consent to life-sustaining treatment. This cuts across two of the centre's themes. It's relevant to end of life and also to your health society and regulation theme. I'm going to just start with a, a quick word on terminology. I'm going to focus on the law as it pertains to adolescence. But I'm going to recognise that adolescence spans legal childhood or elements of legal childhood and also elements of legal adulthood. So I shall refer to children and adults to differentiate between those under and over the age of 18. That's notwithstanding the fact that it seems a little odd sometimes to refer to a 16 year old as a child and normally I prefer to them as a young person but that gets very complicated 
when I'm trying to make that basic distinction between the law as it pertains to children and the law as it pertains to adults. In many countries, the law draws a bright line between adults who have capacity, who are allowed to make determinative decisions, even if they're considered by others to be irrational. And on the other hand, children, whose harmful decisions can be vetoed by the state, and sometimes by their parents, even if the child has capacity. In England and Wales, the authority for this proposition comes from two 1990s cases, we are and we w. And Lord Justice Nolan said in VW that an individual who has reached the age of 18 is free to do with his life what he wishes. But it's the duty of the court to ensure, so far as it can, that children survive to attain that age. The bright line distinction between adults and minors is controversial. It often excites debate because it seems to be unfair to some children. It seems to contradict the hard-won advances in children's autonomy rights that were set out in the Gillick decision. It treats children differently to adults, even if they possess similar capacities. And it's also created an asymmetry between consent and refusal. John Harris has said of this uh, asymmetry that it's palpable nonsense that a child might be competent to consent to a treatment, but not to be competent to refuse it. Some have questioned whether these 1990s refusals cases are defensible in light of advances in human rights protections, particularly in England and Wales. Two legislative provisions in particular suggest that it could be revisited. First of all, there's the Human Rights Act 1998, which allowed people to defend their rights that are guaranteed under the European Convention on Human Rights in UK courts. And then there's the Mental Capacity Act 2005, which extended to some children, so it's namely 16 and 17 year olds, an assumption of mental capacity. But the opportunity for a case to test this has until very recently proved elusive. Thankfully, there aren't many cases where a child's refusal of life-sustaining treatment that is in their clinical interests come before the court. But even where they have come before the court, they're often heard in an emergency. And this has left the judges with insufficient time and scope to consider whether the principles that underlie the judicial precedents are still justifiable. But finally, in 2021, the opportunity for a test case arose. And the case concerned a 15-year-old, X, who all parties agreed was Gillick competent. X is a Jehovah's Witness, and she refused blood transfusions that were needed to manage crises relating to sickle cell syndrome. And the doctors had previously approached the court for an emergency order that treatment would be in her best interest, and that had been granted. But now what they wanted was an ex-ante order to deal with the likely event that she'd have another acute emergency episode in the future. So this wasn't an emergency hearing, and it gave Sir James Mundy the opportunity to review the law and to ask, does the passage of legislation such as the Human Rights Act and the Mental Capacity Act since those 1990s cases change the way that we view decision-making by competent young adolescents. And Sir James considered the arguments and concluded that those 1990s precedents remained good law, that social, cultural, legal changes since the 1990s didn't warrant a new approach to judicial override of child treatment refusals. So consequently, today in England and Wales, children under 18 don't have an absolute right to decide even if they satisfy the test for capacity.
They can be overruled by the court where doing so is in their best interests. In this paper, I want to explore where this finding leaves us. Whilst in the past, many academics have focused on whether the welfare position with respect to children with capacity is justifiable, now that this question has been answered, at least in doctrinal terms, I think it raises another question, which is, are we protected enough of young adults? There are two reasons why this might be a pertinent question. First, because whilst the outcome of the 1990s cases is still relevant today, as we've just seen in the VX case, there is a subtle shift in the reasoning, which I'll explore in due course. The shift suggests that judges will usually seek to link their override of a child's decision with a defect in the child's autonomy. And second, there's a growing body of physiological, sociological and psychological evidence that adolescents can impact on decision-making, and that this is impactful both sides of the child-adult divide. It's widely accepted now that adolescence continues beyond 18 and into a person's early 20s. So I want to explore the reasoning in VX that even if children have capacity, they're not autonomous in the same way that a mature adult is autonomous. And then I want to consider what this means for adolescent adults who similarly can sometimes be shown not to be autonomous in the same way as mature adults are autonomous. I'll argue that we're not doing enough to recognise and accommodate adolescents in early adulthood, especially in relation to very serious decisions, such as refusals of life-sustaining treatment as contrary to a person's best interests. Now, this appears a very controversial position to take. It appears that I might be attacking the very definition of adulthood itself. But the normative position that we should recognise the impacts of adolescence in adulthood doesn't necessarily, <clears throat> doesn't necessarily mean that we need to view adolescence on each side of that divide in the same way. So my claim is that we can recognise adulthood from the age of 18, whilst better accommodating the impacts of adolescence on decision making. And I'm going to back this up by giving an example of how this has been achieved outside of health law in criminal law sentencing. And what I hope is that by the end of the talk, it doesn't seem such a controversial proposition that the impact of adolescence on decision making should be accommodated in adulthood as well as childhood. And whilst my focus is going to be on England and Wales as an exemplar, I hope to show that this is a relevant issue in many other jurisdictions that emphasise the centrality of individual autonomy. So I'm going to start off with a look at the legal context in a bit more detail before I outline two important normative principles that underpin the law in England and Wales. And then I'm going to set out three interlinking propositions, which I hope will lead to a case for better protecting adolescent adults. So start off with the legal context. I need to start by providing some information about the relevant doctrinal law in England and Wales, but much of it will be very familiar because there are so many points of similarity between our health and social care systems and the legal regime that governs them. In particular, the concept of Gillick competences is well known and utilised in Australia post Marion's case. The Gillick judgment is a complicated read, 
One judge says one thing, another says something else, but agrees with the first one, and then there's also a dissent. The facts, though, are pretty well known. Victoria Gillick argued that an NHS policy document was unlawful for allowing girls under 16 to consent to contraception without parental consent. The case went all the way to the House of Lords, which is the, the highest court in the land, and the majority found that the ability of parents to take decisions for children under 16 terminated once the child was able to take decisions for themselves. And it set out a competence test to work out at what point children are able to decide for themselves. The good competence test applies to minors under the age of 16 in, in England and Wales, and it allows a minor to consent if they achieve a sufficient understanding and intelligence to enable him or her to understand fully what is proposed. And that is usually assessed and judged by a doctor. The test has since been applied not only to choices about contraception and abortion, which is what the Gillick case was about, but also to other treatment decisions, and sometimes even to decisions outside of medical law, such as decisions around adoption. It doesn't govern all medical decisions, though. Some are subject to special statutory or policy controls, as in the case of organ donation and clinical trials, for example, and that reflects the difficulties of protecting the minor's best interests in those particular situations. Okay, so Gillick applies to under 16-year-olds in England and Wales. At 16, different laws apply. Section 8 of the Family Law Reform Act 1969 provides that the consent of a minor to medical treatment is as effective as it would be if they were 18. And at the same time, the Mental Capacity Act 2005 applies to determine when adults, who are defined for the purposes of that act as being over the age of 16, can be said to lack capacity. The Mental Capacity Act in section 1 sets out an assumption that a person has capacity and only if that assumption is rebutted can a decision maker decide for the person in their best interests. Okay, so to summarise the position then, in England and Wales we have two capacity tests that apply to children. One for under 16 year olds where the common law Gillick test applies and the child must show that they have the maturity and understanding in relation to a particular decision in order to reach that threshold of competence. And then another for the 16 and 17 year olds where two statutory assumptions operate, one that they can consent to treatment like an adult can, and the other that they have capacity to consent. So this seems to apply that at 16, young people are treated the same as adults for the purposes of medical treatment decision making. But actually the transfer of power is much more modest because at the same time, another act applies, the Children Act 1989. And that was passed to comply with the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. And it makes the welfare of the child the paramount consideration in relation to any case on their upbringing. So until they're 18, this applies concurrently with the statutes that give 16-year-olds the right to consent and assumes their capacity. But actually, it's pretty rare that there's a conflict. Um, because usually clinicians offer treatment that is in the 16 or 17 year old's best interests and the young person will consent to it. But it's much more complex if the young person refuses treatment that's recommended in their best interest to keep them alive. In such a case, a welfareist approach set out in the Children's Act is potentially at odds with the autonomy-based approach set out in relation to children in Gillick. 
The two can then potentially be reconciled on the basis that guilt competence sets out a threshold which might be passed where treatment desired by patients is in their best interests, but won't be passed if treatment or a refusal of treatment is contrary to their best interests. When a child refuses treatment, it can sometimes be given an emergency even if they don't consent. But outside the boundaries of a true emergency, wherever the treatment involves a doctor touching the patient in some way, appropriate consent is required to protect the doctor from legal action, tort and possibly criminal law. As we've seen, this can come from the child, provided they're competent if they're under 16, or if the assumption of capacity hasn't been rebutted if they're 16 or 17. Alternatively, the authorization, the authorization for treatment can come from a parent if the child lacks capacity, or it can come from the court. In relation to all children under 18, the courts in England and Wales have made very clear and recently confirmed in the VX case that if treatment is in a child's best interests, the child can't necessarily refuse consent, even if they are competent or they have capacity. The best interest test recognises the relevance of the child's autonomy. So sometimes their view will be so clear and compelling that it will be in their best interests to allow their refusal even if they'll suffer physical harm or die. But so too, their views can be overridden. So, having set out the legal context, in the next part of the talk, I want to link social and scientific evidence of the impact of adolescence on decision-making, either side of the bright line of adulthood, in order to question whether protections of young adults are sufficient. An 18-year-old whose position is impaired because of their adolescence is unlikely at the current time to be recognised as somebody who potentially lacks agency and therefore deserves the protection of the empowering ethos of the mental capacity regime. I want to argue that this could be problematic based on the internal logic and the coherence of the regime itself. So I will set out two foundational legal principles that form the backdrop to the mental capacity regime in England and Wales, and then I'll move on to making three propositions. The two foundational principles are firstly that people make autonomous medical treatment refusals. When they do so, they should have their decision respected. And secondly, that people who are incapable of making autonomous medical treatment decisions should be protected from making decisions that would cause them serious harm. I'm going to focus on showing that these principles are foundational. So I want to establish that they're relevant to the foundation of our framework in England and Wales without actually questioning whether the, the framework itself is normatively appropriate. Towards the end of the presentation, though, I will make some comments about the potential for more wide-ranging reform. So as I briefly set out then in England and Wales, Legal mechanisms exist to determine when a treatment refusal is insufficiently autonomous, in which case it might be overruled. One mechanism separates children under 18 from adults who gain protection to their right to decide and lose certain welfare-based protections. At 18, an adult with mental capacity who seeks to refuse life-sustaining medical treatment generally has the right to make that determinative decision. In light of those two principles, I'm going to advance three interrelated propositions. First, that it's possible to square the law sanctioning the judicial veto of refusals of life-sustaining treatment in the child's best interests 
with those two principles, with principle one and two. Second, that adolescence doesn't end at 18, but extends into a person's 20s. And third, that if the first and the second propositions are right, the law as it currently applies to young adults whose decisions are impacted by, that, by their adolescence sometimes conflicts with the second principle, which requires that those who can't make an autonomous decision are protected from serious harm. Okay, so I'm going to outline the two principles and the three propositions in more detail, and then I'll turn to the potential implications, which I hope we can then discuss uh, in questions afterwards. The first principle is very well known. And it's that people making autonomous medical treatment refusals should have their decision respected. It's perhaps most famously expressed in John Stuart Mill's harm principle, which states that the only valid reason to restrict the liberty of a person is if their act will cause harm to others. And in this talk, we're not concerned with the idea of harm to others as such, but rather we're interested in the idea that there's a sphere of protected liberty. And this is a foundational legal principle, as can be seen in the dicta of many judgments. One example is Lord Reed's 1972 speech where he said, English law goes to great lengths to protect a person of full age and capacity from interference with his, with his personal liberty. It would be unwise to make even minor concessions. Now this principle was perhaps a little slow to catch on in health law, where a patriarchal regime dominated for some time. But there's been a significant and decisive swing from endorsing paternalism in the 1960s to tolerating it and latterly to promoting in its place the concept of individualism. It uses autonomy or self-governance as a proxy for Mill's insistence that it will only apply to those who are in the maturity of their faculties, as he phrases it. In this way, an individual's ability to make a rational choice is the justification for giving them liberty. In the 2015 Supreme Court case of Montgomery and Lanarkshire Health Board, where the UK at last caught up with Australia on the law of informed consent, Laws Kerr and Reid set out a number of important social and legal developments that point away from the model of the relationship between the doctor and the patient based on paternal, uh, sorry, medical paternalism. One such development is that patients are now seen as rights holders rather than passive recipients of medical care. Another is that they're increasingly seen as consumers exercising choice to vote for judgment. Citizens are now better informed and so they're more able, willing and expectant of a partnership model between doctors and patients. And Montgomery was about the right of patients to the information needed to make treatment choices. But the protection of patient choice is also being set out in cases concerning treatment refusals by adults. So I'll give you a couple of examples. In RMB, Dame Butler Sloss said, a mentally competent patient has an absolute right to refuse to consent to medical treatment for any reason, rational or irrational, or for no reason at all, even where that decision might lead to his or her own death. And then the St. George's Healthcare NH Trust and S, Lord Justice Judge said, even when his own life depends on receiving medical treatment, an adult of sound mind is entitled to refuse it. Now, whilst reference to the harm principle is usually implicit rather than explicit, there are examples of cases, which I won't go into in any detail now, where judges do expressly refer to John Stuart Mill's harm principle to justify upholding irrational but capacitous adult decisions. 
So much for the protection of adult liberty. What about children? Well, we've seen that the courts can overrule a competent decision by a child, which ostensibly conflicts with principle one. But in a few minutes, I'm going to call that into question and suggest that the courts are increasingly reluctant to breach principle one, even in relation to children. First, though, I want to set out the second principle. The second principle is that people who can't make a voluntary and capacitous medical treatment decision should be protected from their own decisions where serious harm would result. And this flows from an exception to Mill's harm principle, which he said would apply only to those in the maturity of their faculties. Both in Mill's expression of it and in the way that it's applied in the, in the UK and many other legal jurisdictions, this is framed not simply as an exception to the rule protecting a person's liberty of action. It goes a step further and recognises that people who fall into this category require state protection from their own harmful decisions. So to quote Mill again, he said that those who require being taken care of by others must be protected against their own actions as well as against external injury. And this principle too is given recognition in the case law and in many cases directly quoting Mill to justify protection of people who lack capacity or lack voluntariness so that they can't make an autonomous decision. The law employs concepts such as voluntariness, competence, capacity and childhood as proxies for autonomy. In compliance with principle one, it sets out assurances that patients who are capable of autonomous decision making can refuse treatment even if they'll die as a result. But it also sets out statutory and common law rules to recognise and protect the welfare interests of people who lack competence or capacity or voluntariness or can't otherwise make an autonomous decision. The law takes seriously its duties to protect vulnerable people from harm if they're not able to make decisions themselves. It also takes seriously the duty to all to do all that's practicable to facilitate a capacitous and voluntary decision, recognising that overruling the individual should be a last resort. In England and Wales, the Mental Capacity Act sets out an assumption of capacity and a test to determine incapacity. If a person can't make a decision because they have an impairment of their mind or brain that prevents them from understanding, retaining, using and weighing the information, then others can make a decision in the person's best interest. Subsequently, it's been confirmed that in some cases, people who have mental capacity but are nonetheless vulnerable and unable to make a voluntary decision can be protected under the inherent jurisdiction of the court. So there are these two branches, capacity and voluntariness, two components that are needed for a valid consent in law. If either of those are lacking and can't be put right through support and empowerment, then the decision, including a decision to refuse treatment, can't be relied on. If that decision would cause the patient serious harm, it might not be in their best interests. Okay, so having set out the two principles and I hope shown that they're foundational to the current legal framework in England and Wales, at least with respect to adult patients, let's now turn to the three positions that are set out in the introduction so we can see if there are any areas that are out of sync with those two principles. And the two principles, I've put them on the slide there, that autonomous treatment decisions should be upheld and that those who are unable to make such decisions are protected from serious harm. 
So the three propositions, the first that vetoing a young adolescent's competent decision can be reconciled with principles one and two. Second, that adolescence spans childhood and early adulthood. And third, that the current iteration of law in England and Wales leaves some young adult adolescents vulnerable to their own harmful decisions in a way that conflicts with the second principle. It seems at first that the law on children's treatment refusals is a straightforward breach of principle one. After all, the law recognises that a capacitous or competent decision to refuse treatment can be overridden by the court. But I will submit that on closer examination, whilst the judges don't rule out this possibility, they employ various mechanisms to attempt to bring their decisions into line with principles one and two. And this is important because it recognises that where the courts breach principle one in favour of a status-based rule that children can be overruled and adults can't be overruled, there's a cost in terms of consistency and coherence of the law. As we've seen, Mill was keen to defend autonomy as well as to defend liberty and recognises that autonomy, which is understood as the ability to make a rational decision, is a justification for protecting liberty. There's evidence of a historical shift in position from the strong power of veto in the 1990s, in the cases of VRUW, for example, to a recognition of the costs associated with reaching principle one in modern day law. And this is backed up by the decisive move that I described from paternalism in favour of autonomy in health law more generally, which would suggest that an outright breach of principle one would be problematic, both in its substantive application and in the incoherence it could bring to the law. Now there's plenty of evidence of the desire to accommodate children's autonomous decisions in clinical practice. I think sometimes we focus so much on the court cases that we forget a little bit about what goes on in clinical practice. In practice, very few cases actually come to court, and those that do are usually the very finely balanced cases where there's some doubt as to the child's independence or maturity. By way of example, in 2008, um, a 14-year-old girl, Hannah Jones, who spent a lot of time in hospital since she was diagnosed with leukaemia aged four, refused to consent to a heart transplant. She wants to die with dignity at home, and her parents supported her. A local doctor, however, sought to challenge her decision. But after an interview with a team of child protection officers, it was decided that Hannah was making an informed, rational and competent refusal in light of understanding of the risks and benefits of treatments and the requirement that it would bring for long-term hospitalisation and medication. Like many cases, this didn't come to court, and in fact it only came to the media's attention because the parents were willing to bring it to the, to the, to the media's attention because they, they wanted to raise some money to take her on a, a, an exciting last trip to Disney World. So there's evidence then that Principle 1 is often taken seriously in relation to children in practice. But what are the mechanisms employed by the courts to apply to comply with Principle 1? Well, they differ across time and across nations. Let's start by looking at the 2018 Australian Mercy Hospital's Victoria case. This case, as many will be aware, involved a 17-year-old, D1, who was 38 weeks pregnant. There was a risk that she might bleed in childbirth, but in such an event, she was clear that for religious reasons, she didn't want to be administered blood products. The Gillick test was applied, an assessment was made of her best interests. 
Just as Macaulay concluded that Dean lacked a sufficient understanding, he said, I'm not convinced she has based her choice on a maturely formed and entrenched religious conviction, on which basis overriding her choice would not rob her of her essential self. And this isn't to say that the court couldn't have found her competent and still overridden the decision in compliance with her best interests. But it does imply that the stronger the evidence was on me, the more likely it is that the best interests will be furthered by respecting her wishes. And that position, I would argue, is compliant with principles one and two. Another example, the Supreme Court in Canadian Codes of AC versus Manitoba is another really relevant example. It involved a 14-year-old who, again, refused a blood transfusion for religious reasons. And Justice Abella set out a sliding scale to give weight to the child's view, depending on their maturity and development, and also depending on the seriousness of the decision. So that in some cases, the principles of welfare and autonomy, she said, will collapse altogether by the child's wishes will become the controlling factor. It's worth quoting Justice Abella at some length because she recognises both the historical shift in position with regards to the relevance of child autonomy and also the importance of respecting truly autonomous decisions that they can be uh, articulated. She said that the latitude accorded to adults at common law to decide their own medical treatments has historically narrowed dramatically when applied to children. However, the common law has more recently abandoned the assumption that all minors lack decisional capacity and replaced it with a general recognition that children are entitled to a degree of decision-making autonomy that is reflective of their evolving intelligence and understanding. The right to make these decisions varies in accordance with the young person's level of maturity, with a degree to which maturity is scrutinised intensifying in accordance with severity of the potential consequences of the treatment or its refusal. Okay, so there's two examples. The third one then is REACT, a case that I, that I opened with in England and Wales. Now, you can contrast this case with Justice Macaulay's analysis of patients' understanding and voluntariness in Mercy Hospitals. Because reliance was placed in VX on the medical opinion that X was given competent. That wasn't questioned. The medical expert's advice was X was competent and that was accepted. Resultingly, though, the emphasis shifted in VX from X's maturity to make a Gillick competent decision to the very nature of Gillick competent decisions. So James concluded that a Gillick competent child isn't autonomous in the same way as a capacitous adult is autonomous. In other words, I think he's arguing that there's no breach of principle one because the child, even if they satisfy the test for capacity, isn't sufficiently autonomous. Now we can debate the merits of the different mechanisms used to comply with principle one. But I think that's for a, for a different discussion. What I think is pertinent for now is that the courts seem to be mindful of principle one. Even if they could, in theory, simply overrule an autonomous decision by a child, they seek to link the power of veto to the child's lack of autonomy. Some do this by raising the threshold for competence to accommodate maturity, independence, and other factors that weren't fully articulated in the original Gillick decision. Others do it by applying the Gillick criteria, but then recognising that Though it's necessary for a child to be Gillick competent in order to make a decision, it's not always sufficient 
to satisfy the court that a serious and harmful decision is autonomous. And this takes us to the concept of adolescence. Adolescence is a term that was first coined by G. Stanley Hall in 1904, and it was described largely negative connotations associated with turmoil and stress and storm. By the 1960s, it was acknowledged that adolescence is also, as some positives, it's a time for skill development and creativity and exploration. It's widely understood as a process of developing from child into adult. And it's a unique stage of human development during which the person experiences rapid physical, cognitive, psychosocial change and growth. The impacts of adolescence diverse and highly personal to the particular person. Developments in neuroscience, however, link it to a propensity towards risk-taking, impulsivity, lack of control, and difficulties in appreciating long-term implications of decisions. Adolescence has long been recognised to be relevant to the power of veto in relation to children. In AC and Manitoba, for example, which was then relied upon by Sir James Mumby in the 2021 case of VX, the court said, whilst many adolescents may have a technical ability to make complex decisions, this does not always mean that they have the necessary maturity and independence of judgment to make truly autonomous choices. Reviewing the scientific and academic literature, the court in BC recognised that children might not give adequate weight to their decisions, to their future interests, to the potential, for their values to change, and that they may lack maturity even if they have the cognitive capacity to decide. They might lack independence even if they satisfy developmental <coughs> and cognitive criteria. And at paragraph 73, the court concluded, Many experts suggest that due to the very nature of adolescence, adolescent choice may be particularly prone to defects in decisional autonomy. The focus on understanding and intelligence in Gillick arguably leaves a gap. It arguably, arguably leaves its application prone to missing some of the impacts of adolescence on decision making. It won't, for example, necessarily accommodate the impacts of undue influence or lack of independence on the child. So arguably then it's understandable that in light of the scientific and social evidence that Gillick must sometimes be embellished or, as in BX, circumvented in order to work out whether the child in question is making an autonomous refusal and thereby to uphold principles one and two. Hence, in BX, Sir James accepted the medical evidence that X's decision is competent but then proceeded to find that competent children are autonomous in the same way the much mature adults are. And in Mercy Hospitals, the judge took evidence relating to understanding, maturity, independence, and voluntariness, and decided that in the round, D1 didn't have sufficient understanding of the consequences of her choice. Both principles, or both approaches, I think, can be squared with Mill's principle that truly autonomous decisions should be given due weight, but also with this principle that society is duty-bound to protect those who aren't in the maturity of their faculties. So, the second proposition that I wanted to make is that recent developments indicate that adolescence isn't over at 18, but actually continues into the mid-20s. Now, the impact of adolescence is highly variable, but for some, this suggests that reduced ability to assess and act upon risk 
sometimes combined with a lack of independence, might lead us to ask if principle two justifies the protection of children, even if they satisfy the test of capacity, then might it also justify the enhanced protection of some young adults? And the first matter for us to consider is whether adults can ever be considered to be adolescents. Because in common parlance, when we talk about adolescence, we're talking about a transition into adulthood. And the law gives us a good answer as to what an adult is. An adult is somebody over the age of 18. So it seems reasonable to assume then that adolescence ends at 18. But biological evidence of adolescence into adulthood has been gathering for some time. Physiological research examines the chemistry and the physics that controls the body's functions. It applies a scientific method to standardise the definition of adolescence through analysis of the brain's structure over time. Developments in neuroimaging indicate that the adolescent brain continues to, to develop into the 20s. From the onset of puberty to around the age of 25, there are waves of synaptic pruning, which I'm hoping you won't ask me to, uh, <laughs> to explain in much more detail, um, where essentially uh, unused connections in the brain uh, facilitate the ability, uh, the ability to uh, control risk and emotions. So during this phase, neuronal plasticity occurs, whereby adolescents can learn and adapt to a range of environments and situations to develop as individual independent adults, but can also render them vulnerable to making improper decisions because the brain's region-specific neurocircuitry remains under construction, and that, by the way, was a quote, thus making it difficult to think critically and rationally before making complex decisions. So, in conclusion then, there's evidence that changes to the limbic system affect self-control, emotions, risk-taking, and decision-making and that this continues until around the age of 24. Accordingly, a biological explanation for risk-taking is now linked to the underdeveloped prefrontal cortex, which leaves both child and adult adolescents vulnerable to risky and impulsive decisions. Alongside this growing biological uh, evidence, there are also sociological considerations that indicate that generations are taking ever longer to attain the independence and stability and self-reliance that from cognitive, emotional and behavioural perspectives tend to signify the onset of adulthood. These milestones vary considerably across time periods, gender, socio-economic backgrounds. In England and Wales, for example, it's increasingly normal for single young adults in their 20s to live with their parents, which can potentially result in increased financial and emotional dependence. So, the third, getting to the very controversial <coughs> proposition, builds on the first and second propositions. If we can explain the protection of children from their harmful treatment decisions as a form of protection of somebody who lacks agency due to the impacts of adolescence, and if we can show that the same impediments that apply under the age of 80 can in some cases also apply in early adulthood, then it's possible that the law isn't doing enough to protect adult adolescence, which could reach principle two. That's not to say that the impact of adolescence on a 12-year-old and a 22-year-old will be the same. Or it's not to say either uh, that a distinction between children and adults is unwarranted. But if we ignore the impact of adolescence entirely, in preference to the idea that at 18 those impediments have all disappeared, 
then we might be doing a disservice to some young adults whose autonomy could be facilitated. Or, where that's not possible in a particular time frame, in an emergency, for example, they could potentially be overruled in preference to them dying. So, if we accept that adolescence is a factor relevant to judicial veto of competent or capacitous treatment refusals, this seems to be clear from AC and Manitoba and VX, then this gives us another reason to take into consideration the impact of adolescence in adulthood. Because to do otherwise would reduce the cogency of the explanation for the powers of veto in relation to child adolescents who have capacity. In which case it's harder to avoid the conclusion that what's going on is simply a breach of principle was. Arguably, if the Adult Adolescent Act Agency and the test for incapacity in adulthood should be sufficient to pick it up. But in fact, several factors mitigate against that. First of all, as we've seen, there's a very common understanding that adolescence ends at 18. That the adult-child boundary is very, very strong. And secondly, relatedly, the courts have expanded time and time again that from 18, decision about refusals are within the remit of the individual, even if it will lead to their death, and even if they're irrational. And that can leave very little room for an assessment of capacity on the basis of the potential impact of adolescence. And then thirdly, and relatedly, guidance on the tests for capacity that apply to adults isn't currently geared up to capture the impacts that adolescents could potentially have on agency. So for all these reasons then, it's very unlikely that somebody whose agency is impacted by adolescence in early adulthood is going to be picked up by the uh, Mental Capacity Act scheme. So at this point then, we've established that the status quo might sometimes breach principle two, because some adolescent adults' harmful treatment refusals aren't always autonomous in the same way as a mature adult. Now one possible response to this, and it may well be your response, is so what? Now after all, principle two is just a guiding principle. It's not a rule. And the law often adopts bright line rules that prioritise clarity and certainty over occasional harsh and unjust results. When you have a bright line, as we do, between adults and children, there will inevitably be cases either side of that line where individual injustice results. And arguably, it's better to err on the side of protecting liberty. On this reasoning, then, adolescent adults whose decisions aren't autonomous are victims of a necessary, but sometimes harsh, legal bright line. But on the other hand, I would submit that the bright line is a product of an age that assumes adolescence to end at 18. Scientific, sociological, psychological evidence that this isn't the case points to a potential injustice for some patients that I would say shouldn't be ignored, particularly if we can find a way to accommodate those scientific and social developments whilst continuing to uphold the rights of adults who are in the maturity of their faculties to have their autonomous treatment decisions upheld in accordance with principle one. I would suggest that as recognition of adult adolescence becomes increasingly prevalent, and it is becoming increasingly prevalent in health and other settings, the potential for injustice is likely to become increasingly visible. The UN Committee on the Rights of the Child recognised in 2016 that generic policies designed for children and young people are failing to address adolescence in all their diversity and are inadequate to guarantee the realisation of their rights. 
So to recap then, if we agree that the law should try to adhere to the two principles that are foundational to the legal regime, then a problem comes to light when we combine the three propositions that are set out. We can see a factor that can render the veto of minors who have capacity compatible with the two principles, which I've argued on the basis of case law is their adolescence, isn't necessarily limited to childhood. It can also apply to some adults, which in turn risks breaching principle two, if those adults are also protected in some, but not necessarily the same way. Now, there's a range of options open to the state that did want to better protect um, adolescents and adulthood from harm. At one extreme, legislation could provide that adults up to a certain age, say 21 or 24, can't refuse life-sustaining treatment unless the court considers that it's in their best interests to do so. Protection of their autonomy would be accommodated within the best interest test, as in the case of children. And this could potentially facilitate consideration of their immaturity, their lack of independence, or their poor risk appreciation outside of the mental capacity of the framework. It would effectively extend the relevance of the best interest test for a limited time and purpose. But I would propose that that would be highly controversial because of the degree of risk that it presents to breaching principle one. That is, it would risk infantilizing some autonomous adults and restricting their liberty to make valid treatment choices. Whereas we can potentially justify a rebuttable presumption that children lack the requisite autonomy to decide, in light of international human rights requirements to prioritise their best interests, it's much more controversial to do so in the case of an adult with capacity, where the right to refuse treatments has been recognised in engaging Articles 3 and 5 and 8 and 9 of the European Convention on Human Rights. Furthermore, change, if it is to come at all, must come with stringent safeguards. History warns us of the dangers of using biological evidence to apply medical labels to sanction authoritarian controls that are designed to curb undesirable manifestations. This has occurred in the past in relation to people with certain mental health diagnoses, for example. We shouldn't use social and biological evidence of immaturity to make blanket assumptions about young adults, most of whom will be well equipped to make treatment decisions. So, I would argue, therefore, that a mechanism to accommodate both principles one and two is only possible if two conditions apply. First, we need to find an accurate way of working out when and to what extent an adult's decision is impacted by adolescence. And second, we need to be able to show that the impairment is such that an adult lacks capacity or voluntariness fitting within the current legal framework. So is there a system by which we can work out whose decisions making is compromised and to what extent? But I think the this is where my co-author's expertise in, sociology, in psychology rather, uh, came in, and the answer is probably not at present. But there are developments in relation to criminal law sentencing that suggest that there could be in future. In criminal sentencing, factors that were once relevant to the differential sentencing of children under the age of 18 and adults are increasingly being applied in a way that accommodates the impact of adolescence on young adults. So in criminal sentencing in England, and also various, various other countries, America is another strong example of this, there's recognition that adolescents can be relevant to the responsibility that should be assigned to young people 
both sides of that crude child's adult binary. They recognise that until the age of 25, the brain is still developing. A Justice Committee report in the UK in 2016 found the following, I'll quote it. Those parts of the brain influencing maturity that are last to develop are responsible for controlling how individuals weigh long-term gains and costs against short-term rewards. As a system to regulate reward-seeking is still evolving, that affects how young adults judge situations and decide to act, including consequential thinking, future-orientated decisions, empathy, remorse, and planning. As a result of this, a new screening tool has been developed to test for maturity, which is then relevant to sentencing and to transition between youth and adult criminal justice systems. The courts recognise that the science is still developing. So in the case of Daniels in 2019, the Court of Appeal said, no doubt science will in time tell us more about the development of the young adult brain and its impact on behaviour. But there will be cases, and this in our view is one of them, where there is material available to the sentencing court which speaks about maturity and development, developmental reality to the offender in question. The courts, in recognising the need to account for adult adolescence and sentencing, drew upon a Lancet article, a medical article, which in turn had called for better recognition of adolescence across the child-adult divide. It is possible to articulate the impact of adolescence on young adults for the purpose of health needs and responsibility in sentencing. And arguably similar psychological assessments could be developed to determine with much greater accuracy when adults refusing medical treatment are impacted by their developmental immaturity, in which case efforts can then be made to facilitate their autonomy. In some cases where a very urgent decision is required, it's feasible that a demonstrable impact of adolescence on decision making should lead to a capacity assessment and potentially, if they're found to lack capacity, to a best interest decision made on that person's behalf. If I'm right, then we have a situation in health law where agential impediments are recognised in older children, but the same impediments in young adults flowing from the same cause are often overlooked. To explain and justify it, we currently rely on a simple distinction between adults and children. But it's becoming increasingly clear that this is too crude. It fails to account for the detriment to young adults if principle two is breached because they deny protection, notwithstanding that in some cases a lack of autonomy could be scientifically and socially explained and could potentially also be empirically demonstrable. It would lead to some young adults making decisions that aren't autonomous decisions that will cause them great harm or death. Whilst currently there's broad acceptance of the view that adolescence ends at 18, I predict that we'll hear a lot more about adults, adolescents going forward. There are already significant moves to make changes in health, particularly mental health. The transition between adult services is gradually becoming more attuned to the needs of the individual. Some will be ready at 16, some may not be ready at 20. There's increasing recognition that young people have many shared needs that are more effectively grouped around adolescence as a concept rather than child and adult binaries. And as we've seen in criminal law initiatives, it's possible to recognise adult status in law whilst also 
accommodating the impacts of adolescence to reduce injustice. I suggested that any change in approach should maintain recognition of legal adulthood and the structures that surround it in order to enhance protection of liberty in compliance with principle one. Historically, the interpretation of laws on capacity and voluntariness has left very little scope to acknowledge the impacts of adolescence in adulthood on autonomous decision-making. But there are actually signs of increased flexibility. I don't want to spend too long on the doctrinal mechanisms that could be used to affect change, but I just want to briefly mention the main themes to show that there is at least potential for change within the existing framework. So the Mental Capacity Act in England and Wales is accompanied by a code of practice which was issued in 2007. Now the law has developed since then, the common law that um, interprets the Mental Capacity Act, and a new draft code of practice was issued in 2022. One of the changes that's suggested in the new draft recognises the importance of assessing capacity if an outcome is unwise and puts a person at risk. And another change recognises that the assumption of autonomy set out in the Act has logical limits, which means that where there's a good reason the cause for concern or doubt as to capacity, responsibility should be taken for assessing and determining capacity. The case law and the draft code recognise that there's no right to make unwise decisions if the unwise decision isn't autonomous. And these shifts in approach are incremental. But they do indicate increased flexibility under the Mental Capacity Act to assess capacity and potentially if the tools can be developed as our iPads, also to find that someone's capacity is impaired by reason of developmental immaturity. So within these parameters we might adapt our interpretation of the law to better recognise that adolescence doesn't necessarily end for an individual at 18. The test of capacity would remain the same but the guidance supporting the test could be amended to recognise that impairment of the mind or brain can sometimes result from non-clinical factors, including adolescence. This should, in theory, be advanced in line with psychological tools that can better determine the impact of adolescence on a particular decision, in order to prevent it from becoming a tool to paternalistically cajole young adults into what others consider to be rational decision-making. If such a change were to occur, then, in addition to protecting young adults who are shown to lack agency, the same psychological tools could be used to articulate with much greater finesse when and why children's decisions are less autonomous than adults. For 16 and 17 year olds, the Mental Capacity Act could be used to determine their incapacity rather than relying on intuition or the inconsistencies that, that result from it that reliance. I focused on changes that could be made within the current statutory framework on capacity in the debates and in light of commitment to the liberal legal framework that, that I've argued dominates. The harm principle and its, and its exception are part of the orthodox legal structure. Essentially then, what I've advanced here is, is a doctrinal argument for change within the legal system. But I've focused on the law in England and Wales, the problem is by no means limited uh, to that country. In many, especially Commonwealth jurisdictions, legal decision-making frameworks operate as proxies for autonomy in the disavowal of paternalism <laughs> and the embracement of empowerment. So I hope that what I've said will call on us to reflect on legal systems that remove legal agency from some and ascribe it to others in ways that 
aren't necessarily compatible with the lived reality of vulnerability and the need that that can create. I'll end by recognising that outside the confines of the mental capacity framework and the dominant focus on individual liberty, some dream of more pervasive change. Martha Feynman, in her 2010 article, um, The Vulnerable Subject and the Responsive State, has shown that linkage between impaired decision-making and vulnerability based on status or characteristics can often result in injustice. And she instead proposes the universal model of vulnerability. And Bev Clough, in her excellent book on the Spaces of Mental Capacity Law, has recently built on Feynman's argument a related strand that criticises the binary between capacity and incapacity. She says it's a binary that results in some people being labelled as lacking capacity when in fact they could be empowered to make a decision. And at the same time, others are denied paternalistic state interventions because they don't fit the conventional label of incapacitated. Harmful non-intervention can be justified on this basis. Care can be forfeited. Individual autonomy replaces a kinder, more effective relationship. And we're left with a trope. She's an adult. It's her decision. 